Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey there and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Mike and joining me today's episode are Amory and Emmett from the My Wall Street Analyst team. Today we have a deep dive into the online dating industry where we look at the trends, pick our favorites and find out why stocks like Match and Bumble have been on such a slide lately. We also take a look at Newcomer Grinder, give some tips and tricks on how to navigate earnings season and pitch two of our favorite charging and fearless stock picks so far. Amory, Emmett, welcome to another episode of Stock Club. Thanks for coming on. Uh, we got a good show ahead of us today. I think we're starting to look like uh, teen romance. Last week we were fighting. This week we're back to dating. Um, so we had the WWE and the UFC uh, merger last week. This week we're doing a bit of a deep dive on online dating and the dating app industry, basically. Uh, so this is one that's seen a lot of success in the past, but has been put through the ringer, I'd say. Is that fair? Over the past year or two, um, it's estimated that of the single population in the US, about a third use online dating. And of that cohort, 26% pay for it in some way. When you get to the younger age groups, then it's even more prevalent. We have 52% of 18 to 29 year olds use some form of online dating. So Amory, start us off here. What's made dating apps so pop- popular, especially among younger generations? Why, why is the, I suppose the stigma been lifted? I remember Tinder in its early days, the saying was, I promise I won't tell people how we met. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I actually think like the big surge that we've seen in the last two to three years in terms of usage, we can probably credit the pandemic for that. There was a big study that was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences um, that basically said that as of this year, the most common way that heterosexual couples are meeting is online. It's no longer in person or through a friend or or through some kind of mutual hobby. Uh, 39% of heterosexual couples reported meeting their partner online. That's compared to just 22% in 2009. So we're definitely on the up and up. Um, But Tinder in 2020, it's a huge surge in usage. It actually cited that that was its busiest year ever. Um, Clearly, people had a lot of time on their hands and oftentimes they weren't able to meet in person as would typically happen. So it meant that we were seeing more and more kind of online dating behavior, you know, people scheduling Zoom calls or there was a huge rush for these apps to bring out video capabilities, which I think, again, normalize the idea for people like, hey, it's totally fine to meet people online because I don't actually have an alternative at the minute. You know, if I want to meet mm. a new person, this is the only way I can do so safely. And um, if there's any way according- to make a first date more awkward, though, is put it on Zoom. Put it on Zoom. I know. Yeah. Oof. Um, you really would have to work on your background. Think of like, <laughs> background. <laughs> be curated. You'd be there, you'd like get a bookshelf, you'd be like, okay, I have to put good books in the background. Yeah. They need to know that I can read, but also that I read the right things. That was a like, huge thing um, for all the Zoom backgrounds going on the news or CNBC or whatever else. And they'd have this yeah. perfectly curated bookshelf with like the art of war and all this stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> really prominent in the back and stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. so you'd have, sidetracking. You'd have to be doing the exact same thing. But uh, according to Tinder, in 2020, conversations on average were 32% longer than they had been pre-pandemic. And people matched, meaning that like two people both had to like one another, 42% more, which is quite significant. Obviously, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. Um, there were also 20% more messages sent per day in February of 2021 in comparison to February of 2020. And the number of swipes on Tinder broke 3 billion in a single day for the first time in March of 2020 and then was able to surpass that benchmark 130 more times since. So really, that kind of initial phase of lockdown that we sat in for most of 2020, early 2021, really seems to have kind of normalized this behavior for a lot of people and also just pushed them to use these apps more and more in whatever way they can, whether that's matching with people, messaging people, or meeting up for dates. Mm. Amish, why do you think about all this? Huh? Well, you know, the entire... Uh, app-based and kind of online-based dating scene predates my <laughs> my dating your, life. Your so romantic post-dates history. <laughs> yeah. So I'm married 20 years and I never used any of these products, never even saw them. So I have to say, I don't have a very great sense for the user experience. Obviously, I've participated in enough conversations to get the whole swipe thing. But did you say, Anne-Marie, there was a billion swipes in a day, in one a day? day. Yeah, and it's done that 130 more times. That being said, though, like Tinder is funny in that, like, it gets classified as like dating, but I would say like 70% of the behavior on Tinder is not people looking for people to date. They're not even looking for people to message. It's like this kind of social media like interest in seeing like if people are interested in you because you just want Mm. the ego boost. So a lot of the time, particularly. Yeah, when people are bored, they just sit on Tinder and they just swipe. Like, it's not really, I don't know, it's like you're somehow so removed from the other person. Yeah. Well, that fits in, mm -hmm. that fits into the COVID pandemic stuff as well, where it just became a a, a version of Candy Crush because you couldn't go on a date anyways. Yeah. And there was like so many more users pouring into the system because, again, so many more people were locked at home that, yeah, it just like upped the ante for these people who, yeah, do view dating it's not even dating. I can view the use of these apps as a game. And that was actually something that came up in my research was an awful lot of people who'd been brought into these companies like Match and, and Bumble and, um, and and kind of every small up and coming company has somehow brought in a game engineer, like someone who has come from like a Candy Crush background to come in to make these apps even more addicting through like gambling like behavior. Yeah. Mm. But of all the human needs that seem to come under pressure during lockdown, I think the one that expressed itself most was the need to be with somebody. And if you are, you know, single and you want to be, and you're active on the dating scene, this go home and stay there till we tell you approach was really very, very difficult for someone Mm. in my stage of life where I have a home and have a family and it's, you're just locked in here, you, you know, you're like, fine, okay, no problem. But I think when you're just one generation below me, that was a very, very difficult time period. And I'm not surprised to hear that all the dating apps just had a surge, whether it was for the ego, whether it was to arrange, you know, secret rendezvous, whatever. <laughs> but it just, you know, I, I just, you can see that human need really did come under pressure during that particular chapter. Mm, 100%. Um, so, Amory, what problems has this industry faced in the last two years, say? Because the Matt Stock, Bumble, they've both kind of fallen off a cliff since yeah. around what, about two years ago, is it? 
Yeah, we've seen a significant correction, particularly over the last kind of year. And I think it's the industry has begun to come down from this pandemic boredom swiping. You know, people had excess cash, excess time. They were willing to to to, to shell out a bit, you know, to entertain themselves. Um, Tinder specifically has kind of hit a bit of a rut. So as you mentioned in, in the intro of their match group, it was one of the worst performers of the S&P last year. It plunged 70%. And that like match for a very long time was considered a highly successful stock. It was raking in revenue. Um, and, and, and it really comes down to Tinder because Tinder generates something like 53% of, of matches revenue. So if you begin to see this app stutter, you begin to go, Ooh, that's a threat to half of this company's worth really. Um, kind of the, the, there's a number of key performance metrics for Tinder that we're beginning to see um, stumble a little bit in terms of paying customers. That that level has basically stopped growing over the last year, so you don't have as much kind of revenue coming in. And then on top of that, we are beginning to see competition eat away at it, particularly when it comes to the younger generation, which is really who you should be targeting. You know, people coming into their twenties because they're most likely to be your long-term customers. You know, there are people who will maybe stay on the app for a couple of years, come back and forth, and, and then that type of thing. Um, we're really beginning to see young people turn more and more towards Hinge, which luckily is owned by Match, but doesn't contribute nearly as much revenue. And then Bumble, which would be considered independent competition, which is also publicly floated. Um, Tinder has around 11 million paying users compared to Bumble's just 2.1 million and Hinge's 1 million. But if we look at, at growth rates, um, that's th- quite significant. And then even on top of you know the, the users, user metrics, if we look at downloads, um, we begin to see, again, Tinder's starting to fall off there. You know, back in 2020, they they were averaging um, about 80 million downloads for the year. Um, that has now fallen; it's sinking back towards about 60 million. Whereas Bumble, you know, in 2020 was averaging about 20, and it's pushing up now towards 30. So, you, you know, it, it it is it's it's kind of that old thing of you have a growth company, you have something that's becoming popular, that's in trend, that people are moving towards, and then you have kind of the old stable original player that is, you know, it's 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 losing some of its shine a little bit. It's been around. People know about it. Um, so yeah, that has really been the problem for Match. But at the same time, like Bumble is not exactly the market shining star at all. It's down like 75% since IPO. It only IPO'd in 2021. Um, and that problem has really been profitability. They saw... Uh, an initial slow of paying users kind of at the beginning of this year. I think that's quite reasonable. You know, we kept hearing cost of living crisis. People probably had to sit down and make the decision, is me paying for a dating app worthwhile when the cost of eggs is like $8 a dozen? You really are then having to say, do I want eggs or do I want to pay for Bumble Premium? You know, that can be a tough choice for some people. Um, And so we did see the total paying user growth slow down for Bumble at the beginning of the year, but that has actually picked back up the last quarter, quarter or two. So uh, it's uh, Bumble seems to be on the up and up. It's beginning to improve. But as tends to happen, because these two stocks operate in the same area, they tend to just get lumped together. So even if Bumble is beginning to inch ahead here, we, we, we're still seeing them both be kind of dumped by investors and analysts across the board. Mm. And Marie, when I looked at Match last, which was a couple of years ago, it had a vast array of apps. Like there was yeah. for every particular interest and needs. Like, so depending, just to make sure you were aligned and amongst a community of people that you wanted to form a, relas- a relationship within. But there was this standalone asset, which I think was the Princeton Review. D- huh. Which, uh, yes, and uh, as far as I know, they still have it. So when you look at their folio of 
apps there they all approximately do the same thing except the princeton review which i'm not entirely sure what the princeton review does it has a kind of a premium brand but i can't even recall what it does is it a circular or is it a is it for practicing your uh, sats i am yeah, even sure i think princeton review is a testing is like a testing yes. prep company that's, that's so what bizarre. it was that's what it was yeah does that and, go back to uh, the minor- match was spun off by um iad is that what it is the the very that very famous tech com- like tech um, mm, yeah, company that would prepare things for I IPO. See, yeah, yeah. Did them? <laughs> that must have gone back to them. Like that, they they might have I lumped wonder. them in and spun them off. Well, definitely when they IPO'd, the Princeton Review was one of I think it was fifty two assets, and I remember thinking, "Wow!" Reminded me of Sesame Street. One of these kids is doing the <laughs> wrong thing. I don't know if either of you guys remember that. Some of our listeners will, but I'm like, that is the strangest thing. You can practice your SATs while trying to find somebody uh, on one of their apps. So uh, anyway, yeah, interesting. Okay, so Amory, you mentioned the kind of two main companies in the space and the two largest stocks. I think you kind of maybe answered this question or half answered it already, but would you favor Bumble over Tinder right now from these levels? Because they're kind of sitting at similar valuations and similar, um, Mm -hmm. similar, I suppose, uh, downturns, you know? Yeah, in terms of price to sales, yeah, they're certainly on the same over. They're both sitting at about three and a half at the minute. That's well below the tech average is five. Um, and I know all of tech has been sold off, but there does seem to be dating apps have been punished especially hard. But um, yeah, like if I was going to pick up stock in in one dating app company, I would lean towards Bumble at the minute simply because um, I read a pretty good analysis in Morgan Stanley recently that talked about when it comes to the North American market, the United States in particular, it's kind of already – in terms of users, like everybody has already kind of picked a side, if you get what I'm saying. So when it comes to revenue growth, the the story is no longer getting users in the door. The story is monetizing the existing users that you already have. And actually in the United States, Bumble is the most popular paid dating app. Tinder still has the greatest number of users. But when it comes to people actually valuing the product and saying like, yeah, I'll throw $20 a month towards that, Bumble is the winner there. And I would expect them to continue to be able to push that envelope. They tend to quarter over quarter increase average revenue per user. So I'm excited by that there. But also just in terms of international expansion, Bumble has way more room to grow. Tinder is already in like 190 countries across the world. You know, anywhere that's going to take Tinder has Tinder at the minute. And I think people... I don't know. I think it's kind of old news. And so, you know, Bumble, you get a bit more excitement. You know, they've only just pushed into Western Europe. They've only just begun to launch in Asia. They're only just pushing into South America. You know, you do have that idea in the back of your mind. Okay, over the next five years, as they go into new markets, there's a whole host of new uh, users that they could pick up, particularly because they have a bit of insight into those markets because they own Badoo, um, which is certainly an old, an older dating app. It predates Tinder. It's still, you know, is it's, it still makes up about 25% of Bumble's revenue, but it's um, an interesting one because it still continues to be quite popular in continental Europe and large parts of South America. But now Bumble has this advantage of essentially getting to go in and swap the services around, um, which I think will be interesting. Um, yeah. And, and then just on top of that, like both Match and Bumble are overly reliant on a single app. You know, Bumble's is its namesake and, and, and Match is its Tinder. And, and Bumble just is the more exciting main app. You know, Match certainly has some exciting elements to it. I think Hinge is going to be huge over the next couple of years. But, you know, Hinge can have 30% plus revenue growth for the year, and it just gets completely washed out by the fact that Match has a bunch of other underperforming assets. So it means then the overall company has almost no revenue growth for the year, and you're going, well, why would I do this when I can pick up something that's 
projecting between 15 and 19% revenue growth next year, which is where Bumble is at, whereas Match is predicting much slower revenue growth. So that is kind of, yeah, where I would be interested in going at the minute. I also think there's quite an interesting angle in terms of Bumble in that Bumble has the women, and we know that dating apps tend to be quite imbalanced when it comes to, to, gen- to, to, basic, to gender. Basic, like, nightclub economy there. It's like Definitely, wherever, yeah. wherever the it, women To go. mine goes 9 to 95, women got in free. Camille, yeah. what's the story with, um, like, Hinge? What's its angle? Like, wh- why is it different to Tinder or... Uh, well, yeah. Bumble is is female led, but what what is the what's the story with Hinge? What's it do? Hinge is like I would say is most similar to Bumble in that like it has a bit more of a wholesome reputation. Like Tinder is very much has okay. been pushed to the realm of like hookup culture, but Hinge's oh, actual like marketed catchphrase is the app that's made to be deleted. So it's for people that are like mm. looking for an actual relationship. You know, they want to go on a couple dates and then find someone that be like, oh yeah, I want to consistently date them. So very much in the same realm as Bumble. That's probably their closest competition. Um, but Hinge is also in its like making its way into new to into new markets phase. Um, Match is expected over the next couple quarters to pour an awful lot of money into marketing of both Hinge but also Tinder. They're doing a massive Tinder rebrand um, that has already begun in the United States. I saw some of the ads in the um, subway in New York and they had these big billboards everywhere um, that really was trying to clearly redefine Tinder in people's minds as no longer being this hookup app of, of, of being you know this place where you could find relationships because – when we look at the statistics, it seems to be more and more that's where Gen Z is heading. There seems to be a rejection of the kind of casualness that dating apps initially brought to us. Um, mm. So that really, again, puts the ball in the court of Bumble um, and Hinge. I have a Tinder story. Can I tell you it? <laughs> if you want. Uh, I was it's in, not going to uh, cause you any troubles in your marriage. No, 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 none, <laughs> none whatsoever. Well, I hope not. So I was in the coffee queue, our line for coffee in Cafe Nero, which is Downstairs, it's under underneath the My Wall Street HQ uh, on Marion Row. And I was queuing up for my coffee, lining up for my coffee. And I looked behind me and I saw this guy, Sean Rad, who was the founder of Tinder. And I thought it was, I was standing there going, I'm pretty sure that's him. And I knew he was in town to speak at the Web Summit. So I said, excuse me, are you Sean Rad? He said, yes. And I said, oh, well, there you go. I said, uh, well, I've never used your app. And he goes, oh, <laughs> well, he goes, I don't think you'd have much success in it. And we had a laugh. And then I got into small talk and uh, I said, where are you staying? And he said, the Shelburne Hotel. Oh, and I said, I'm going to give you three statistics or three stories about Shelburne that's going to knock your socks off. So I, I went for it and I told him my three Shelburne stories. Uh, one of them is that um, Adolf Hitler's a second brother or kind of what do you call it kind of stepbrother rather uh at the outbreak of world war ii fled germany and uh abandoned his family and his family's history and heritage understandably and got a job as far as i know in the shelburne as a doorman <laughs> and so i kind of gave that story then i said and the irish constitution was written upstairs in the constitution room I, i'll show you so he and his girlfriend and i uh, took a stroll up to the Shelburne Hotel, which is only another four doors down from the coffee shop, actually six doors. So I went down to Shelburne, walked in upstairs and made my way down to the Constitution Room and I went in. Now, the, con- the original Irish Constitution, the original used to be on the wall there. And um, it, might st- it might have gone back, but I opened the door and I looked at the wall and went, it's gone. 
So the Irish constitution was missing. And I said, well, this is definitely where the Irish constitution was conceived and drafted. And it was there last Thursday. So I thought, I wonder if somebody nicked it. Nicholas, so anyway. Nicholas um, Cage movie right <laughs> National, <here. laughs> National treasure. So I'm standing there with Sean Rad looking at a blank wall where the Irish constitution should be hanging. And I, I, so I was kind of lost. I, I didn't want them to think I was spoofing them. So I said, so did you pair me to, uh, on Tinder? And he said, we sure did. And I said, oh, very good, very good. Anyway, so I gave them a small tour and walked and said all the best. And we swapped business cards and off he went the next day to the um, web summit. And we loosely stayed in contact afterwards. And then I Googled him, right? And this is where I got starstruck. His girlfriend was Michael Dell's daughter. How, like, how cheap am I that I actually got a kick out of that? I was like, wow. I just gave Michael Dell's daughter a tour of the Shelburne Hotel. <laughs> anyway, that's my Tinder story. It's a good one, right? I feel like I feel like those people are both too rich to be on Tinder. Yeah. No. They should no. be on that, the paid that other ones app or something. Uh Rada. What's the oh, Raya. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Raya. They should be on that. Raya. There's a <laughs> what's its em, angle? Em, there's an app called Raya and it's essentially like Bumble or Hinge. It's for people looking for relationships. But you have to be invited. It's like a private club. Oh. With the idea oh. being that everyone who's on there is like a celebrity or someone who's very wealthy oh, and would yeah. be known to be very yeah. wealthy. And it's the idea that like obviously they don't want to date a, regu- a regular pleb so they only want to date celebrities yeah so it's so what would, would ryan would ryan tuberty be a lister enough he's by the way everyone at the i what do you call him the the, the conan o'brien of late, ireland late so night host. yeah late night host so um, is would ryan ryan be big enough because he's our a lister i think <laughs> yes because I, I apparently they do it like re they accept and invite regionally so he probably is big enough to get into like oh. the irish market but probably if he went to los angeles they would just kick him off the app they'd be like right <laughs> so the so the ryan tuberty of moldova can get on this or even trans yeah. which is the breakaway state on the other side of the Donetska river maybe he'd be or she'd be able to interesting great okay send yeah. me the name of that <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i don't know if there'd be slim pickings now and transonates but um <laughs> we're gonna go past tinder and bumble and i think it's fair to say both apps probably predominantly serve the heterosexual market I, I, I assume they have options but nothing extensive we'll say but there is one company and it's recently public that serves the gay community and that's grinder so emmett you were looking into this one yeah, and it is the number one social network for the LGBTQ plus community. And it has about 12 million monthly active users uh, all over the world. Wherever there's an app store, uh, Grinder has a, a user base. And as I look at it right now today, it's about $6 and change, $6.25 a share. Its market cap is just over a billion dollars. It's a $1.08 billion company. And for our listeners who are new to investing, that's just taking all the shares and issuance, every share that's out there and multiplying it by the share price. So it's a billion dollar business. And it under trailing 12 months over the last uh, year, it has a P, its P is 625, which says to me it's broken through as a profitable business over the last 12 months, but at just a hair's breadth because it's a huge, big high number, 625. So, well, in early March, Grinder released both its Q4 and its fiscal 
2022 shareholders letter and the numbers actually looked very good. Uh, it has 12 million monthly active users. So that's a very busy base of users. Uh, there was 111 billion chats sent. Now, when you think about it, you just said, Amory, that Tinder had a billion swipes in a day. Mm-hmm. And 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 Grinder had um, 111 billion chats in uh, in a year. So that means it was having about a billion chats every three days versus Tinder's billion swipes record in mm-hmm. one day. So it's kind of like in an engagement level. You can see it in the same ballpark. It has, um, a, a swipe is much more blasé than a, a message. A message is, you know, the person has to think about it and then say, I'm going to message them. A swipe could be, you could do a, a hundreds of swipes in a in a in an hour. Thousands, okay. probably. All right, deal. Yeah. I'll try. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so from those 12 million um, active users, Last year on Grinder, uh, about eight hundred and seventy-three thousand, or less than a million, were paying users, uh, and the business generated less than two hundred million in revenue, one hundred ninety-five million dollars in revenue. And when you dive into the letter, the shareholders' letter, I really did like how the CEO George Arison, who I think is a relatively new CEO, uh, he really articulated his optimism really very succinctly. And specifically in the letter, he said that what gets me most excited about this business is Grindr's immense opportunity to grow and deliver shareholder value. I'm highly confident in the plans we are developing to generate substantial double-digit revenue growth and continued high profitability as we enhance our user experience, better monetize our core business, execute over time, to build out our international business and to add new adjacent business opportunities as part of a community-focused super app. And the reason I liked that is I really do like when I see CEO expressing themselves with language that they have to stand behind. I mean, this guy is talking about being excited and highly confident and double-digit growth. I mean, he's leaning into this. And we've read, I've read enough of these letters to kind of detect where a team of solicitors or lawyers wrote the paragraph, or if the CEO, in fact, kind of tried to imprint their personality. So certainly from the written word, I was impressed at this guy's vision. And and he obviously went beyond what he said. Um in the same presentation, he went on, uh, or rather the business went on to elaborate on those short, medium and long-term growth opportunities. And it's definitely worth a look if you're interested in the business or in investing in the in the segment. But regarding the year that was 2022, they closed out in December, at the end of December, at the top end of their guidance. Revenue had grown 30 uh, 4%, uh, which, as I said, was to about $195 million, um, had operating income margin of 7%, and it had uh, an EBITDA margin of 44%. Um, so, yeah, I had a good look, and um, that was that was my first takeaway. Yeah. As, uh, zooming back then to the IPO, you mentioned the CEO, Aronson. He had, he had a really strong message on IPO day, I think it was, mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm where he basically just said that this means a lot more for the gay community seeing something like that. There was a huge, big drag show on Wall Street uh, outside the trading floor and stuff. And what it represented it meant a lot, I think, for that community mm. and that representation and all the rest. But since the IPO, it, it had an incredibly wacky IPO day or week, 
And since then, the stock has kind of been incredibly volatile. So what's the story there and what caused that? Mm. Well, just to, uh, not to be pedantic, but it wasn't quite an IPO. It was a SPAC. It listed oh, and sorry, it was acquired. Yeah, yeah no, no, no. It, it was Tiga Acquisition Corporation. And it was at the, I think it was November 18th. And and um, as they said, they came out swinging on the New York Stock Exchange. So definitely uh, they they SPAC'd into existence. Um and I suppose the first thing I'd say, it hasn't been that volatile. It's not, it hasn't been too bad at all, to be honest, Mike. Now, most SPACs or every SPAC is priced at a tenner, uh, 10, 10 bucks a share. Um, and it had the kind of its typical exuberance and then it fell over to kind of $5. And it's steadily grown from January to now to about $6. Um, uh, so it kind of seems to have a steady upward trajectory at the moment. And, and, and I, I wouldn't say it's been hyper-volatile on that point. But what's interesting is that, as with any business, Grinder has its competitors, like um, I think there's one called Hornet, and there's a couple of other ones. But it is the giant. And this early mover advantage it had, and it has, means it has 85% brand awareness. Now, I don't know if that's amongst everyone who uses the mobile phone, or is that just amongst the LGBTQ plus community? But that's a big competitive advantage in this space, because really it's a marketplace. And the one thing that makes these uh, marketplaces successful is the ability to be matched with somebody who shares your uh, your interests and and, and the outcomes effects. you're seeking. It's the network effect. So I do think Amory that was being the first Tinder, you know, if it doesn't have totally the women there, no one's going to use it. Like, yeah, exactly. No, Bumble, Bumble is the one. Bumble's the one with the women. Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. Tinder, <laughs> Tinder has a gender issue. It's like seventy five percent male. Right. <laughs> Mm. anyway sure who wants that grinder doesn't have that issue (laughs) (laughs) so anyway so it's a yeah i have to say like i I looked at grinder it um again just as i i wouldn't run to invest in match or in in bumble despite knowing the founder of tinder and giving him a tour of a tour of an empty room (laughs) (laughs) actually it's not it's very nice room it's not it's anything but empty there was plenty of other things i decided to throw in a few stories Uh, but anyway yeah um i think the constitution is back there but anyway the point is that i've never used any of these apps and and so I, i i would not favor any of them. I haven't dived into Matt recently, but yeah, I think uh, Grinder is, it looks like a very good business. It looks like it's on the front foot, really like its growth numbers. And sure, it seems like its users are having great crack, uh, Irish word for fun. It, honestly, I lo- I've never seen a happier uh, a kind of IR deck. It just, it, it, honestly, uh, the gay community have such good fun. Most mm. straights have it so, so, it's sometimes so boring, you know. <laughs> Never has been that translation or proviso needed more. Um, okay, <laughs> I am going to just close this section off. Um, general broad question on the industry in general. Do you think it's going to be stronger? Uh, the dating apps, Grinder, Bumble, Tinder, or Match, do you think they're going to be higher or lower this time one year out? And which company out of the three do you think will perform the best? Um, I Well, I'd say all of them are probably going to see a, a rise in probably usage and people willing to to chip in a few bucks for them. Um, I'd say in terms of like an investment that you'd want to make, I'd say Bumble is going to have the easiest time in the next couple of years bringing in money. But one thing I have noticed uh, from doing research of, of, in this 
sector for the last several years is that it moves fast. Like you really need to be a company who is, you know, tuned in and willing to acquire an up and coming business or make adjustments to your existing products or um, you really do have to follow where where people are going. You know, it's like social media on steroids because the second you begin to lose new users, you've lost the race because you need people to get more people. Um, so I'd certainly say if it's like an investment you're considering, you kind of need to be checked in with both the stock in terms of its financial performance, but also just like the wider market and what's going on. And you need to maybe know people who are using the app so you can go to and be like, here, like, what's everybody using today? Amish, mm-hmm. would you be slightly less optimistic? Um, well, when I look at the annual uh, revenue of the match group, it's grown year on year. Its earnings, bottom line profit has grown steadily over the last three years. I think um, the fact that these businesses serve a human need would endear me towards them. I would say I would, if I was going to pick one, I'd probably go with match just simply because it has carved out an app for every, you know, desire or human need or outcome and and i think that as trends move they'll either acquire or build into that trend so i'm not like i would just buy the leader if i was going to do it but um i do think it'll be i do think that the market will overall market will recover this time next year and it will enjoy all of them will enjoy a recovery over the next 12 months that'd be just my guess okay sounds good um uh- Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I'm just gonna cut in here and say this is your weekly reminder. If you haven't already to sign up for our newsletter charging and fearless, it's a free email in which you'll receive a brand new stock pitch every week. We promise it'll be the most valuable 30 seconds you spend in your inbox. This week's email is carrying the subject line a French mega cap in your drinks cabinet. I think you don't need to be Sherlock Holmes to figure that <coughs> one out. Um okay, moving on to mailbag then. And we got a kind of few ramble questions in around earning season kicking off again. Uh, so I, I guess, Emmett, can you just give us some advice on for our listeners on how to navigate earnings and earnings yeah. season in general? Yeah, for sure. 
as you said, it's about to kick off. There was not a whole lot happening this week. There are a few earnings calls that I recognise but couldn't be bothered to listen to is the truth of it, but it gets really busy next week. But what I'd say to our listeners is in any 10-year period, which is really, you need to think about your investing life in 10-year lots, and you should have hopefully several of them ahead of you. But in any 10-year period, every one of your US listed companies is going to have 40 earning seasons. So if you have a 16 stock portfolio, for example, you can engage in earnings calls 640 times in a 10 year period. So the first thing I'd say is that earning calls, earnings calls are not necessarily there to serve you. Um, They can serve you. But in all my years, I actually cannot recall one earnings call that had enough material information that the course of the business um, or my opinion was subsequently changed or fundamentally uh, altered. Now, there's probably a couple. There might be a couple. I've just forgotten. Like, I'm getting on. I can't remember everything I've listened to. But I just 640 every 10 years. you (laughs) You know, so but what's far more useful What's far, far more useful, I think, to our listeners and anyone who's involved in the stock market is a string of the company's earnings viewed back to back where there are identifiable trends, like ideally three years of quarterly results. So you can see, for example, if there's a seasonality to the business, uh, which is very normal. There's very few businesses that just quarter after quarter grow. You'll find there's a seasonality in most businesses. Um, You can also tell if revenue is growing on the big picture when you take you know, 12 quarters in a row. You can see if costs start decreasing. You can see if the business has a habit of missing or beating quarterly earnings expectations and so on. So single earnings season, yeah, if you're interested in the business and you want to hear some prepared remarks, uh, yeah, fine, tune in. We three do it plenty. Um, Very rarely are they exciting. Very rarely do they, um, you know, kind of, uh, they might just, I would find myself prone to confirmation bias when I listen to earnings calls, I, I like to hear what I want to hear. And, and it, it's difficult to hear something you didn't expect. But yeah, look, I suppose people should use it like infotainment and a sort of, um, and just remember that one quarter does not make a business. And that old saying, I don't know who came up with it, that people overestimate the short term and underestimate the long term, which I think is the planning fallacy. Um, whatever it's called, it's a fact of life that we we put too much weight in a moment on the thing we've just seen or heard. When in reality, when we buy a business, you buy, you, you, you buy a business, you own a business as if in the same spirit in which you will marry someone. And Warren Buffett said that you're literally taking a multi-decade or lifetime approach idea a lifetime approach to buying a business so i've bought businesses over the last uh three years particularly that were duds they were they turned out to be really not good investments um clover healthcare would strike me as one of the worst decisions i made and i'm really finding it hard to find anything i like about the business at this stage however I have made enough sell mistakes based on one quarter, a couple of quarters that I didn't like to know that you just, I'm in, I'm in, I'm going to give it a few, as long as I can. And those type of uh, lessons only come with time. So yeah, quarterly earnings. Yeah, it's another season. We're going to listen to a load of them. But truthfully, I actually think your constitution and mental well-being would be better off if you just ignore them. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know, like, as in, I would love to take that advice and just not do any work over the next four weeks. <laughs> but, uh, if you're listening to this, maybe that's more of a luxury you can afford. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, 
Okay, uh, we're going to close out this week with an elevator pitch. Uh, this ones are stolen from our newsletter, Charging and Fearless, that I just mentioned. Um, if you're listening this far, I hope you know all about Charging and Fearless. And and yeah, I hope you have already signed up. So this isn't news to you, but if you haven't, you should. Uh, Emma and Anne-Marie, I want to know your favorite Charging and Fearless pick so far and why. Anne-Marie, you can kick it off. Um, mine's like pretty easy because I won't shut up about it, but I like it, it has to be Aritzia. I just, I love Aritzia. It's just such a brilliant company. I am in some of like the write-ups that we've done about it. I have made the somewhat audacious claim that it is the next Lululemon, you know, it's Canadian, it's vertically integrated. It's very focused on creating high quality clothing, everyday clothing, stuff that you can hold on to and own for 10 years. It's very, very similar to Lululemon. Um, but just the more and more I see the business, the more and more I see their financials and their stores and their growth, like it, it really does remind me of them. And, and that stock has performed so phenomenally over the last several years. It's up like 350%, I think, since we started talking about it, what, eight years ago. Um, so yeah, Aritzia just excites me a lot. Just as a kind of overview, it's it's called an everyday luxury company. That's a, a, a term that the, they coined themselves, um, and they essentially own a bunch of in-house brands. And those in-house brands design and create clothing all year round. With the overall idea being, we want to create long-term staples that you can hold on to for the rest of your life. So you're thinking about really solid winter coats, very nice t-shirts, jeans, that type of thing. You know, this is not that like class. You need to go into Forever Twenty One or H and M or any of those, and you'll be like, oh, this is a nice plain white t-shirt and then it'll be like it's taco time on the back and you're like god damn it i can't wear this like you're like i was just looking for yeah you're like h&m especially is for something normal like this is like aritzia is very much not that store um full year 2022 revenue was up 74 percent uh that is crazy if you see their stores they they're very cool they're like a 1970s home it's all like big plants and wood and hanging things on brass and 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 that type of thing but they also have a very very solid online presence that was built out kind of over the course of 2020 when they had to close their stores um and they've just continued to bring in money from that aspect um Overall, pretty impressive, 43% gross margin, net margin of 11.3%. We've seen a little bit of compression there, obviously, because when you need to ship any kind of good anywhere in the last two years, that's gotten pretty expensive. I'd expect that gross margin to increase and the net margin as well. Um, They are really in expansion mode at the minute. They have 114 locations only in North America, so only in Canada and the United States. I would not be surprised to see this company over the next five to 10 years push into Europe. They have not mm-hmm. spoken about that yet. So far, they're still focused on the U.S., pushing into you know affluent cities, um, that kind of marketplace. But I would be very shocked if we don't see Aritzia pop up in Paris and Milan and London over the next couple mm-hmm. of years. And I would see that Sounds as a huge like, growth potential for them. Sounds like it's going to be in Brown Thomas soon. You know, those it, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's very much that that vibe. Yeah. yeah um but yeah 19 percent kager over the last five years that's pretty pretty hard to beat so yeah that's definitely what i'm keeping an eye on and it's a canadian company so it trades in toronto do you have shares Anne marie i do not own shares but i i am thinking about it mm. you need a you need a special broker to go trade in canadian shares in you yeah, or you can buy it um, has an ADR, I think. So you could buy okay, yeah. an ADR, which is typically fine if you're doing a long-term mm-hmm. thing. Sometimes those ADRs have volume concerns, you know, because very few people own them. But, you know, if you're planning to hold five, ten years, you're probably fine. So That's a bet. Emmett, what's your uh, favorite charge and fearless pick so far? So I'll remind our listeners what we're picking from. We kicked off with Kahoot. 
uh, and then along the conveyor belt came LVMH, live chat, uh, Ajahn, uh, Aritzia, Topicus, Tata Consultancy in India, and Polestar. And uh, I also have the advantage of knowing the favorite from our Horizon community because I, I ran a poll and Topicus was the by by a large margin the favorite of our um of our community in Horizon and I I don't have the number here it looks like probably well over one third of our community chose that as their favorite followed by Agin the Dutch uh, online payments provider point of sale payments provider um but I'm actually going to go with Polestar and um as so Polestar for our listeners was launched in 2017 and it's a spin-off from Volvo which is fully owned by a brand that I wasn't too familiar until our new uh, CNF charging and fearless machine spat out the name but uh, Geely is the name of the company that owns Volvo and like it Russian, is one of Russian doll of car manufacturers <laughs> yeah yeah but no Chinese it's actually Chinese no, oh, I'm sorry. I got your point. Geely so, inside no. Volvo. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, I'm a bit slow. So it is one of the largest. So Geely is one of the largest car companies in China and it has subsidiaries and JVs with tentacles all over the world as big car companies appear to have. Um, and it, it, it most most prevalent in the US, Sweden, uh, UK and Germany from a fabrication perspective. And it has said it plans to become, now this is Geely, it plans to become uh, a leader in the global automotive industry and and as it said in charting fearless polestar is part of that plan now i know that the ev market is on competitive overdrive like we spoke about it we speak about it we can't avoid it here in this uh, podcast i no, uh, spoke about now, no. for sure like i spoke about neo last week and like i'm very aware that there's a million and one old world and new brands out to grab as much of that market share as possible. But I do really like the fact that Polestar has this really acid light fabrication capability. It doesn't need to build these giant factories because uh, Volvo's owner, Geely, has said, here, use our factories. And um, those two state-of-the-art factories are in China and Charleston in America. And, and with this uh, agreement, Polestar has this really agile setup for building its cars, and and it's fundamentally while while it has the startup mentality, it definitely is underpinned by the the automotive an automotive giant. And the first Polestar, you know, couple of Polestars that I've seen anyway, just look like electric Volvos. Is the truth? But when you go onto the website of Polestar, they have a couple of cars coming, and they are really, to my eye beautiful looking vehicles um they are as easy on the eye as like the tesla 3 you could even argue they're they're more you know modern and up to date i think the tesla 3 has probably been out there for 10 years at this stage so they are beautiful vehicles especially the ones on the production conveyor belt as of uh not not uh, for sale as of yet and when you look at the business from a financial perspective its revenue has grown 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 year after year it's still at slow it's small revenue like where it, it's grown to about two and a half billion in revenue last year with a, a net loss of about 465 uh million dollars and its shares are uh are sitting at around three dollars and change about three bucks fifty its market cap is about seven point six billion dollars seven point five billion dollars so I believe that because of this asset light approach um this Swedish electric startup 
um, has a fighting chance of grabbing more market share than it has at the moment. And for that reason, uh, and when you couple it with the fact that the shares have just been dumped like everything else, it went to market at 10 or a share, down around three bucks and change. I do think it's going to grow. Okay, it's good. So we have Polestar and Aritzia there from our charging and fearless picks if you are interested. Uh, that's it for today's show, lads. Thanks very much for joining me. Remember, if you have any questions you'd like answered or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us and leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on. Thanks for joining us today, and we'll talk to you next week.